0: Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today by a special guest coming directly from Atlanta, Zenkai Tayun Elliston. Zenkai Tayun Elliston is a Roshi in the Zen tradition. He's the founder and guiding teacher of the Silent Thunder Order. By the way, I love that name, Roshi. It's super (laughs) provocative.
1: We like it, too.
0: (laughs) Nice. And you were mentioning before the interview started that the, the genesis of that name had something to do with a
1: Zen It's a uh, term, mokurai, uh, that my teacher Matsuoka Roshi used a lot. It has to do, in a way, with the resolution of opposites. He explained that it meant stillness is great action, or thunder is silence, silence is thunder, thunder in silence, stillness in motion, and so forth. So it's kind of a fundamental non-dual term, if you will, mokurai
0: beautiful. And then you're also the abbot and guiding teacher of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center, which I presume is in the heart of Atlanta somewhere?
1: Yes, it's just to the uh, northeast of downtown. And uh, it was founded in 1977. That is, we incorporated in 1977. So we passed our 30th anniversary a few years ago.
0: And part of the reason that we wanted to speak with you on Buddhist Geeks today is not just because of your rich Zen background, but also because you have a deep and rich background in the field of design and art. And I understand that you taught design and art at the university level in Chicago some time ago. And I wondered if you could maybe start off by sharing a little bit about how you got into design and then also how you got into Zen.
1: Backwards, of course, like most things we do in life, backed into it. I had a. My brother was a child prodigy in music playing piano. And so I. I taught myself to draw at a very early age, couldn't compete musically, but I would get attention, you know, by being able to draw and show people things. So I copied Disney characters and things like that, trained myself to draw. And I had an art scholarship uh, offered to U of I at Urbana and found out somehow about ID at IIT, the Institute of Design, so-called new Bauhaus in Chicago at the Illinois Institute of Technology. We didn't have Google or computers in those days, so it's kind of mysterious how this all came about. But I ended up, uh, instead of going to Urbana, I went to Chicago to the Institute of Design pretty much on full scholarship and loans and so forth. My family didn't have uh, money to send us to school. And I thought, of course, that I was going there to become a painter, become an artist. And as it turned out, of course, it was more industrial design oriented. And so during that period of time, my focus shifted from what I thought I was doing to to what they were actually offering. And I became trained, really, as a designer instead of an artist. So, again, I got into it kind of backwards. During my tenure there. I started doing graduate work as well. I did my Master of Science as well at IIT, the Institute of Design. and I was hired by a former teacher to start teaching at the University of Illinois and Chicago Circle. While I was doing my graduate work in design, I was teaching freshmen and sophomores and people like that coming into a design art environment. So I had to clarify this for myself very quickly very early in my so-called career in order to be able to teach it. And at the same time, I was recruited by the Art Institute of Chicago to begin teaching there. So I taught in both of those schools of art and design before before moving to Atlanta in 1970. The way it came about that I backed into Zen is uh, I had a, a friend of my brother who had become a very well-known jazz musician by that time in Chicago. was attending the Zen Center, and he mentioned that to me, that he was doing Zen these days and so I said that's interesting and I went with him uh, that weekend and met Matsuoka Roshi at the Chicago Zen Buddhist temple which if you're familiar with Chicago was on Halstead just south of Fullerton and that first year I became his disciple. It was a time in my life when I needed something like that. I was teaching full-time, I had a young family and all of the issues and problems that arise with that I see myself doing things backwards quite a lot, and I backed into the design uh, field as well as actually backing into Zen, but I don't regret either of them.
0: Mm. You know, Matsuoka Roshi is someone that I hadn't heard of before I spoke with you. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about his history and kind of where he comes from and his background and stuff. Yeah,
1: briefly, he came over in 1939. He was interred during the war, uh, according to the story. He didn't talk much about his personal uh, biography. He never became famous like some of the people who came over later, like Suzuki Roshi and others. But he was a he was a student of the Dice at Suzuki at Columbia. And I think it was in the fifties that he set up the Zen Center in Chicago and then I met him there in the sixties. Of course, your first impression of somebody is never what you expect, but especially when you're expecting a Zen master. Hmm. And he just seemed such an accessible, approachable person, had a great sense of humor, very warm and friendly. And he told me at one time, he said, you must become a priest, uh, not for yourself, but so that others will listen to you. Said we live in a credentialed society, and uh, if you don't have credentials, they won't listen. So I said, okay, and he performed what he called discipleship. That was the ten precepts. Uh, for other people for most people he would perform the five precepts first what we call jukai or initiation in my case they were combined into the first ceremony so i began training with him and then he was not very formal in his approach to the soto shū uh, sect in japan in fact he like many of the early teachers coming over here had some issues you might say with the size and scale of the institution that it had become in japan So he did not register all of our ceremonies and things of that nature. He did them on a very informal basis, understanding correctly that we were starting a new beginning for Zen here in America. And he always said this would be the rebirth of Zen here in America. So later on, after he died, I underwent some formal ceremonies to kind of get right with God, you might say, (laughs) assure that our credentials are unquestionable. And fortunately, Shohaku Roshi agreed to do my transmission ceremony after I practiced with him and Barbara Cohn of the Austin Zen Center for some time. So they kind of helped bring our lineage into alignment with the larger traditions of the um, American Soto Zen Buddhist Association.
0: Mm, Interesting, interesting. And I know that since you've been teaching, I guess since the early 80s, I'm sure that your design work has impacted your thoughts on how best to teach oh, yes. Zen or communicate Zen. And that's yeah. something you know we wanted to go into with you and explore because yeah. this is a conversation that doesn't happen so often given that most people aren't trained designers. So I was wondering yeah. if you could yeah, share a little bit about your thoughts on design thinking, art, how these things, this unique way of looking at the world, could impact the development of Zen practice or how you've seen it impact it.
1: Sure, I think that's a very fertile area to discuss. I became both a two- and three-dimensional designer, uh, doing a lot of like retail stores and exhibits and trade shows and things of that nature, as well as graphic design. Um, and uh, when I retired from design, I was pursuing really national accounts. There came a point at which I had choice uh, in my early 60s of either going after more national accounts to continue or to, in a sense, retire from that into full time Zen. And that's the point at which I made the transition and decided to devote the rest of my life to full time Zen practice. But I think to get at the question you're asking, the way the two interrelate, I see many, many parallels. In a way, we all reinvent Zen, and in a way, we all reinvent design. Every designer comes up with basically new approaches. It's almost like any other profession where in the beginning you need to have the flexibility of mind to imitate your teacher and eventually you need to develop the flexibility of mind to innovate. In the case of Zen, for instance, I am not Matsu Roshi and my students are certainly not me. And so the way he practiced and taught by his example doesn't always work for me. So I've had to see ways of uh, reinventing what we call skillful means or the expedient means to help others. So we see Zen as the lay practice, you might say religion or spiritual practice of the future. It's designed for lay people. There are monastic versions of it, but in our culture uh, Matsuoka Roshi seemed to see that this again was going to be the rebirth of Zen, but primarily through uh, lay practice. So the design element comes into it in that we are designing Zen in a sense. Now, um, A lot of people would like to throw out said, you know, that they would like to Americanize it, westernize it, throw out all the Japanese and Chinese stuff. That's a little bit like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's very difficult to do. Anything you remove is replaced by something else which may not be as functional. But nonetheless, this is a process, and both design and Zen are very heavily based on process. And so we are now undergoing, like it or not, the first 50 to 100 years of Zen in this uh, culture, the redesign of Zen, and we're designing the program as to how people can practice this and, and maintain a household and a job and you know, keep a car running and keep a house from falling down and mm. so forth. And the packaging of Zen, so that when it's communicated to new people, it's understandable, but it doesn't lose its essential strength. So one way you can think of it, Soto Zen is a great brand. It goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And in both design and Zen, the focus is on practice and sensory learning. The method that taught at the Institute of Design was the so-called New Bauhaus, the Bauhaus from Weimar, Germany, people like uh, Walter Gropius and Paul Klee and other people who were driven out of Germany by, by the Nazis. One of them, moholy nagy came to Chicago and founded a design institute on the north side, which later merged with IIT. And so that was the so-called new Bauhaus. And uh, the emphasis in the Bauhaus Foundation, the first year that you go through is on sensory learning. You just work with lots of tools and materials, To no particular end, not building birdhouses or anything of that nature, but working with wood, glass, metal, plastic, plaster, casting processes, welding, all different kinds of forming and joining processes. And the task of the foundation teachers was to take where you were and, in a sense, take it away from you, break it down they reduce the process of so-called drawing down to simple marking like found objects like a big rag and you dip it in ink and you mark with that and so forth all kinds of very sensory immersion types of techniques to help break down your preconceptions of what this is about so that they could begin rebuilding on a stronger foundation so part of what happens then is what is familiar to you like your signature a familiar mark that you make by going through these kinds of exercises becomes very strange. You begin to see it very differently. and So this is the way that creativity is approached, a way of getting you to rely more on your intuitive mind. So I found that entering into Zen, when we started practicing Zen, that it was very similar. That is, you sit very still for very long periods of time. So what naturally has to happen is your familiar sensory world begins to break down. People begin to see light and color in the blank wall and hear different sounds than they're used to hearing and feel different sensations and so forth. So I found a very strong parallel when I first started practicing Zen to this Bauhaus method of immersion in media. In Zen, the medium is consciousness itself.
0: What other types of parallels or what other types of things have you seen kind of cross-fertilized between those two?
1: Well, one of the things that you, I think you asked was about how Zen could impact the field of design.
0: Yeah, kind of both, in, both ways.
1: My view of Zen is it can impact every field, medicine, it can, it can impact education, on and on and on. I see no limit to it. But in terms of design, art, music, the plastic and performing arts, dance and so forth, and martial arts, of course. Zen, I think you could say, is the heart of creativity. It might seem that there's nothing more stupid than just sitting still doing nothing, but simplicity is the highest value in both the Zen aesthetic as well as the design or art aesthetic. Simplicity is the highest value, but it's the most difficult to obtain. So in design, for instance, we were introduced to this idea and classics of simplicity, such as the bobby pin, that are so ubiquitous and so, you know, worked for so long, nobody even remembers who, who designed them. So if you look at Zazen, sitting in Zen meditation, and what it actually is, it's the simplest possible reduction of method to a simple sitting posture, paying attention to the breath, and paying attention to attention itself. So, it cannot be reduced any further. Even the zafu, this round cushion that we sit on, is very difficult to improve upon from a design perspective. Very difficult to make any change in that zafu, which we think is a Chinese design, centuries and centuries old. Now, Zen meditation is like design in that it is immersion process so that in design or art painting you know sumi ink or even oil painting watercolor a kind of dialogue ensues between the consciousness of the artist and the medium itself you cannot make a medium do things that it will not do cannot do physically so we have what are called forgiving media and unforgiving media watercolor is said to be a very unforgiving medium painting sumi ink on silk which we do to paint our formal certificates on, Huge pieces of silk about five feet long and a foot and a half wide, very tiny brush and painting a continuous red bloodline, if you stop or go back over the line, it immediately bleeds into the silk. So it's very, very unforgiving. So Zen meditation is a medium, you might say, or a technique to approach the medium of consciousness itself your consciousness may be a very unforgiving medium. You know, other people may be more flexible. But when you begin to sit in Zen meditation, you find it is different from the other forms of meditation. In fact, it's not technically actually a meditation. And the reason for that is that it becomes objectless. And at the greatest depth of artistic creativity, it also becomes subjectless, objectless. The individual becomes merged with the medium. So there's no conflict. There's no resistance. And this is, by the way, the holy grail of jazz, which I learned from my brother and my my father had a jazz band in the 40s, that when the musician gets to the point that everything he can hear, and Charlie Parker is the person who's always pointed to for this, everything he hears comes through the through the instrument with no resistance.
0: Mm, that's fascinating. And, and do you feel like the practice of zazen can actually support that process in other mediums? I mean, it seems to be that's kind of what you're saying, that shikantaza, for instance, if one really is practicing shikantaza, that that consciousness could be transferable to these other domains in life.
1: It's not the purpose, obviously, but it's a side effect. Shikantaza, just precisely sitting, is what it's said to mean in translation. Naturally, resistance comes up, right? We'll have some pain in the legs, pain in the back. Then we have Physical resistance thats one of the first barriers. Once we have been able to sit long enough and patiently enough to overcome the physical resistance, we have developed a lot of patience and so naturally that patience comes into our practice with other people. It's much easier for us to be patient with others, much easier to be patient with a project or a medium that we're working with because we have developed kind of a fundamental patience with our own impatience on the cushion. So, yeah, I think it carries over many of the great classic artists and brush painting and so forth, with, and music in the Orient in particular. You read stories that they would always sit in meditation before they would pick up the brush.
0: And you use this really interesting phrase that consciousness is the medium of Zen.
1: Yeah, if you think about it, just as going to design school, people come in with a lot of their own opinions or going to music school or any place else, And then they have to be disabused of those misconceptions. You have to be able to relinquish those. In the same way, when you sit in Zazen, you assume that you already understand your consciousness. You assume that it is what you have been since you were a kid, and no mystery here. But what happens is when you sit very still for very long periods of time, everything changes. I think it was Krishnamurti who said something like, uh, if you speak, it, it is silent. If you're silent, it speaks. So similarly, if you move, it is still. If you are still, it moves. So what we consider to be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, in Zen we begin to find that it's distorted. It's incomplete. We don't really see seeing itself. We don't hear hearing itself. And We don't feel feeling or sensation itself we see the objects in our field of vision and we hear the objects in our field of hearing and so forth. But there's another side of it and all you really have to do to experience this is put in some uh, like swimming earplugs and sit for a while. You'll hear this raucous noise that's going on inside your body uh, which you don't ordinarily hear. So the mind turns off. There's a theory of the brain back in the 60s inspired I think by psychedelic (laughs) drugs is that the brain is a filter, basically. It filters out more information than it lets in. Its function is to filter out. This is evidenced in Buddhism, where Shakyamuni Buddha was attributed, with saying that the mind imposes a false stillness on reality. Well, this is where Sensei Mukurai begins to come into play. If you sit still, then you begin to see great action. So, Zen meditation is different from other meditations in that it involves the eventual transcendence of subject object and becomes objectless. So, it's not truly a meditation. There's no subject meditating upon an object. In that same transcendence is the transcendence of the duality of mind and body, self and other. So, it becomes consciousness, contemplating consciousness through consciousness. The subject, the predicate, and the object are just one.